Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. Thanks for joining us. My name is Stan Schwartz. I'm an infectious diseases physician with decades of experience in healthcare as a student, a teacher, a fellow, a researcher, a practicing physician in both solo and group practices, a health system executive, and now a healthcare entrepreneur, and as I get older, as a patient. I want to share my 360-degree view of healthcare with you. My thanks to Zero Studios for support of this podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. My special guest today is Dr. Doug Schramm. Dr. Schramm is an internist who is the medical director for Alliance Resource uh, Partners. They are an energy firm that deals with coal and natural gas uh, with headquarters in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but with many locations in the coal producing regions of Virginia, Kentucky, uh, West Virginia, and the Appalachian area. I was very interested in talking to Dr. Schramm today because he really has challenges in delivering health care to a particular rural segment of his population of covered members, which brings about challenges that many of us in larger metropolitan areas don't have. So Dr. Schramm, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and give us an idea of the size of the company, the number of covered members, and kind of your geographic dispersion? Sure. Uh, thanks, Dan, for having me on. Um, well, as you mentioned, uh, Alliance Coal or Alliance Resources, we're a, an energy company. Uh, we have employees in, uh, well, basically we have uh, mines and office locations in six states. Uh, we have employees in at least seven states, a few scattered in some others, uh, predominantly across the southeastern United States. Um, we have around uh, 3,000 to 3,200 employees and around 10,000 covered lives on our health plan. Um, and our average employee age is 42. Um, and uh, we have a very unique health plan. Um, uh, you know, kind of like every other mid-sized company in America until 2008, uh, when we broke away from our uh, relationship with one of the large carriers and decided to become self-funded. And... I understand you use reference-based pricing for your payments. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, but that didn't come until later. Uh, in 2008, we decided to become uh, self-funded because we just didn't feel that we were getting the information we needed to make uh, good decisions about what kind of health care we would cover uh, for our employees. We weren't getting that kind of information from uh, the large carrier. And... Um, so we split off and used a third-party administrator from 2008 uh, until 2020. During that time, uh, we um, migrated from using PPO networks and uh, kind of the traditional method to a reference-based pricing method where we're doing direct contracts with our providers. And it's a reference of Medicare. Uh, it's a percentage above Medicare reference-based. And uh, eventually fully integrated that. And then in 2020, uh, we became not only self-funded, but self-administered. We started paying our own claims. Now that's on the medical side, you know, on the prescription drug side, we still use a pharmacy benefit manager, but on the medical side, we're, we're fully administered. 
So when we think about, you know, the, the coal mining regions, we think about Appalachia, we think about, you know, our, the, the image that comes into mind are relatively low income areas uh, that are not particularly doctored up very well, where health resources may not be very well available. Tell us about the kind of resources that you have for the majority of your covered members. Am I thinking more stereotypically or am I thinking accurately? Well, that's a, a, actually a great observation. I think in some ways it's stereotypical, but in other ways accurate. Um, if you go through those regions, yeah, many of them are remote. Um, many of them don't have great access to healthcare. But I think with the expansion of mid-levels, um, what I've seen anyway in our plan and our members is not necessarily um, great difficulty in finding some kind of medical provider, um, not at least a primary care provider. Now, finding specialty care is another situation, um, but I'd say most people do have access to primary care within a reasonable distance. Now, to kind of address that issue, though, uh, for a number of years, I'd say probably I've been with the company for almost eight years, and I'd say for at least 12 or 13 years, the company has been providing on-site clinics at our mine sites. Um, and that was very, very helpful even before we saw some expansion of primary care into some of these more rural areas. Uh, but we still have those in place today. And so really from our perspective, there, there doesn't seem to be a primary care shortage. It's really mainly in specialists, subspecialists, and uh, in particular pediatrics of specialties. So how many of these on-site clinics do you have? Uh, we have 11. Um, and uh, they're all operated uh, by mid-level practitioners with the exception of two. Uh, one has a full-time physician and the other one uh, has a one full-time physician equivalent. Um, so the nurse practitioners have a, you know, there's physician oversight, um, but there's a very, it's a very cohesive group that works very, very closely with the health plan. Um, so it, it really is kind of an integrated system, if you will. Do you have a sense for what percentage of your covered members get their primary care predominantly from the on-site clinics? What percentage see outside doctors? Yeah, that varies uh, based upon uh, relationship, if you will. And the employees, I would say probably, you know, well, if you look at routine healthcare, probably 50 to 60%. Uh, we'll see our clinic providers uh, at some places, 80 to 90%. Uh, the, the figures for the spouses and the children are lower because they're further away from the mine site. You know, the, the mine site clinics were predominantly set up to help with presenteeism. You know, we have, uh, we run miners on three shifts. And so the night shift guys, you know, uh, may not have access when they're leaving their shift. Uh, or before they go on shift to healthcare, and so we can, you know, take care of their issues and then get them get them to work, rather than having to you know, go into a community maybe twenty miles away to just have a simple office visit. So it's been mainly effective for presenteeism, not as effective uh, for our our spouses and children, at least not as effective as we would like. And we're, you know, discussing ways to to enhance that. Do, is there just a natural disinclination for wives and children to go to the mine site? Is that part of it or is it distance predominantly? 
It's predominantly distance. Uh, I think that's that's the big one. You know, if if you live in a small community that say has a community hospital and, and some outpatient clinic services, and you need to drive in 20 to 30 minutes to work in a more rural area, the mines are very rural. Um, but your spouse and children are back home in that community, it's going to be hard to justify, hey, get in the car and come 30 minutes to the mine site clinic uh, when you've got a maybe a mid-level or a hospital system, you know, five minutes around the corner. So I think that's the biggest challenge there. Um, due to the nature of our benefit, uh, it there really isn't a large financial incentive for our uh, members to use the clinics at this point. Because if you go to a place in our, our, our health plan, and just to back up for a second, our, our benefit is really pretty uh, amazing, if I don't mind saying. We've got uh, no premiums on our health plan. And uh, if you go to a provider where we have a direct contract known as Alliance Direct, then you have no copay and no coinsurance. And so if there's a, a community provider that's Alliance Direct and you go there, it's not going to cost you anything. And it doesn't cost you anything to go to the clinic. So there is no financial incentive. If we say, for example, charged for someone to go see a provider in the community, then yes, we would certainly be pushing more people toward the clinics. But at this juncture, we're, we're uh, really about trying to provide the least cost to our employees as possible. So it sounds like the benefit structure pretty much allows people to get most of the health care they need at no cost. Yes, that's correct. Was that... What, what's the origin of that? Is that because people couldn't afford health care? Do you need that as a benefit to keep people working? Um, to attract people and retain people? Yes, to all of that. Um, I think it, it for our company, it's become a competitive advantage. Uh, I think a lot of people, we're, we're so used to out there in, in normal corporate America to paying a certain percentage of our salary into uh, healthcare premiums. You know, the average employee, I believe, pays you know for a family coverage around five to six hundred dollars a month out of their check. And you know, when you come to work at Alliance, suddenly you've got five hundred dollars, you know, to your bottom line directly uh, that you're not having to pay out in premiums. That's particularly frustrating if you don't use any healthcare, right? To pay all these premiums, and then when you do use healthcare, to get hit with these big co-insurance bills. And there are people, as you know, out there with health insurance who go bankrupt. You know, if you're making sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year, and and you have a catastrophic health event, by the time you've paid your premiums and your your coinsurance, you could easily go bankrupt. So, um, yeah, it it has been, I think, for Alliance a competitive advantage. And honestly, I think it's a company philosophy that really is just kind of the right thing to do. Uh, if we can do it, why not do it? Do you find that having no copay basically for a lot of services, does that improve people's adherence to guidelines, to getting things done, diabetes checks and all that? Does it make a material difference? You know, that's that's a great question. I wish it did. Um, you know, and, and I, I got to say that many of the things I'll, I'll say here today are anecdotal. You know, some things we've really looked at and studied since we do have tons of data, um, you know, on our healthcare utilization. But you know, I, it, I don't think the answer to getting people to lose weight or quit smoking is to just give them more access to health care. Um, our, our folks have lots of access to health care, limited to no cost, and it doesn't seem to be, you know, having major impacts on rates of obesity uh, or smoking cessation or, or things of that nature. Uh, particular obesity, you know, our, our, I'd say we probably have a 60% obesity rate 
um, you know, BMI 30 and above. Um, and that's, you know, probably average with the US, maybe a little higher. So I don't think there's any correlation there between giving people more health care. People know they need to lose weight. People know they need to quit smoking. It's not rocket science anymore for people to know these things aren't good. It's how do you change human behaviors? And that's a, that's a tough one. And if, uh, if somebody out there has figured that out, please let me know. <laughs> do you have any particular programs in place? Is, is it easy to, to put anti-smoking programs in place with your population? Well, that's, you know, as much as I'd like to, I think, you know, you have to deal with the, every company has a culture and, you know, in that culture is not only corporate or within a particular office or in our case, a mine, um, but it's also that, that community in that area of the country. Um, and, um, you know, we, we encourage people, of course, in our clinics, and, and I know our providers outside of our clinics do encourage people to quit smoking, especially those with cardiovascular risk factors. Um, but we haven't gone forward as of yet to really uh, try to, um, to push that. We have uh, historically done some uh, large-scale, uh, what we call, um, health fairs, if you will, where we do health risk assessments on our, our folks. And uh, several years ago, there was a really big effort um, and I mean, giving away prizes and a variety of things and people in the mines were competing with each other to get health risk assessments done. Um, and that was really actually very helpful. It was elucidating to you know, kind of see what's going on in the health plan. Um, what are obesity rates, you know, who's smoking, who's not, and that sort of thing. But when it really came down to it at the end of the day and trying to get people to change those behaviors, you could do that temporarily, but it didn't seem to have a long-term effect. Now, all of that said, we did look at something we called our heart age. Uh, it was a calculation that our clinics had come up with several years ago, taking in several factors, you know, cholesterol levels, do you smoke, do you not, um, a variety of things. And um, interventions in our, through our clinics and, and giving low cost statins, for example, uh, or no cost statins, um, you know, kind of those sort of things and a real effort on cardiovascular health really did seem to push our heart age down. And when we stopped with some of those efforts, there was, you know, some of an increase back up in heart age. So I can't really say that there's no effect at all from any kind of intervention. Um, you know, we're, we're right now designing some ways at how we can look into our data, our health plan, and, and figure out ways to, um, to impact our folks and how can we measure that, you know, so that other people maybe can learn from our experience. Do you find that health literacy, the ability to understand and act on medical information as dispensed by doctors or literature is a, let me back that up about health literacy, because there's a common misconception that, you know, the less educated you are, the less health literacy you have, which is totally untrue. People can be very educated and have poor health literacy and vice versa. Do you find health literacy to be an obstacle in delivering care or not any more in your population than in any other population? Well, you know, it, it, it may be a little more of an issue, um, possibly, but I don't think it's dramatically different than what we're seeing across the U.S. And I think exactly to your point, it, it seems to have no real 
relationship to intelligence. It's just its interest, it's uh, a variety of other things that's hard to pin down. You know, we associate the areas where your minds are with, you know, the again, a stereotypical impression would probably be a fairly high rate of obesity, but also a high rate of cigarette smoking, opioid use, alcohol use, and so forth. Is that an unfair visualization of your population? Um, in some ways, no. I, I think it's pretty well known that certain areas of the country have, they're struggling right now more with higher rates of opioid addiction, overdoses, and that sort of thing. Um, I, you know, I, I haven't compared our numbers, you know, because I haven't seen real benchmarks out there for kind of taking a comparable population somewhere else. Um, but I can say that just looking at diagnoses of, say, opioid use disorder in our population, um, it's probably about oh, three times that we see of alcohol-related disorders and probably 10 times that uh, from what we see with, uh, say, uh, methamphetamine or other stimulant abuse disorders. And now, that's, those are diagnosis codes, right? Uh, does that really tell us what's happening really out there? Because as you know, for every one person that's diagnosed with something, there's probably another three or four out there who are struggling with the problem. Um, you know, I've looked at our data over the last several years, and, and we've had probably at any given quarter, you know, 50 diagnoses of, say, opioid use disorder uh, per quarter, uh, it, 50 members with a diagnosis of opioid use disorder. Um, that seems to have actually, that's, I think if you compare that to our population, um, which has fluctuated in our health plan, it actually has probably gone down a bit over the last two years. Now, could that be that during the pandemic, people were just seeking less health care? You know, I don't know, but I can say that our inpatient admissions for substance abuse seem to have gone up a little bit, and certainly the number of days and the number of treatment um, uh, episodes that people are going through has has gone up some. So, um, you know, we yes, bottom line is it's a problem. I think it's a problem for everyone. Uh, strangely ignored right now by you know it's kind of overshadowed still by COVID. But I think we're we're losing far more people per year in this country from opioid overdose, sadly, than we are from COVID. So, um, it's a it is a real problem. I do have to say though that while we have had people overdose. Uh, from opioids on our health plan over the last few years, I, there hasn't been one at least in probably, I'd say, 18 months, which I do find a little bit, I find that interesting given where we've been with the pandemic and everything. So, Do you have the resources that you need in the rural communities to help people with opioid abuse syndromes? Um, in some areas, yes. In some areas, we struggle. Uh, we do have access to a psychiatrist in our, through our clinics, through telemedicine. We have a telepsychiatry program where approximately 50 uh, members per uh, month are seen uh, through that. Um, and there's also access to a child psychiatrist um, through that system as well. So that's really enhanced, especially the child psychiatry uh, options, really enhanced the ability for, for kids to get psychiatric help. Um, I would say overall that specifically for substance abuse disorder, that's a tricky one. Uh, as you know, uh, there's been, you know, with the Mental Health Parity Act and, and all of that, we've 
I think that's a good thing. It's really increased access to mental health services, but unfortunately it's also increased a lot of unscrupulous providers out there, especially on the coast that are having these opioid um, treatment programs where people come in, spend 30 days, you know, and then leave and then they're addicted within, you know, back to their old ways within days. It's a cycle they just keep going through. So um, we are right now uh, engaging uh, some mental health providers and trying to um, structure a program where we're at least vetting who we're sending people to. We're looking at uh, should we be setting up regional substance abuse facilities, for example, that we contract with? It's like, okay, you have a substance abuse disorder. Here's the pathway you go through. Uh, here's the place you go. We vetted it. Uh, we do have a care coordination team, two nurses uh, that, that work with members who have substance abuse disorders um, and ensure that when they leave the facility, they have a care plan in place and that, that care plan is followed. That you know, are you going to your follow-up appointments or, you know, we're doing as much as we can to keep people uh, who've invested their time. And as a plan, we've invested our money in trying to get them to, to a point of, of sobriety. And, and the hope is that through mutual effort, we can keep them there. But it, as you know, it's, it's tricky. It's a, it's a tough, tough disease process. Are you using telehealth for other things besides psychiatry? In our clinics, uh, not yet, but we are starting a, uh, an initiative where our, our members at home can access our providers in the clinics. And so that's one of the uh, things we hope will help the access for the, especially the spouses and children who are at home, um, who don't want to drive to the mine site, to be able to access the mid-levels or the physician there in the clinic. So, so the short answer there is yes. Uh, we, do have telemedicine capability in the clinics. And our plan also covers telemedicine visits like most do uh, with providers outside of our clinic system. Here's a question I hadn't anticipated asking you, but, but after our conversation, it comes to mind. You know, the, to a certain sense, the coal industry has been demonized in this country. Although without the coal industry, we wouldn't have very many lights on in this country. And right. as you've told me in the past that, yes, your Tesla runs on electricity, but the electricity comes, uh, just doesn't come out of the outlet by itself. Correct. <laughs> does, the, does the overall country gestalt about coal and the use of coal, does that kind of have a psychological effect on the population of the people who work in mines? Yeah, that's a, actually a great question. And I don't think anyone's actually ever asked that before, but it's one that we've thought about. And um, I would say, yes, um, it has. I mean, it's hard to be in an industry where, you know, people seem to hate you or, you know, it's like blaming you for all the ills of society, even though as they charge their iPhones to, <laughs> to tweet about how bad you are. I mean, it's, it's really... Interesting. The hypocrisy is, is incredible. But um, yeah, I, I think it has been hard, but really in some other ways, it seems when you visit these mine sites, the, the people that work underground are incredible. And uh, it, it is not like most people think. I think everyone needs to go underground in a coal mine and see what happens. Uh, they're like cities underground. Uh, they're, they're well lit in general. You know, uh, you, you can 
drive, you know, four miles underground, 500 feet down and four miles, on a, you know, four wheeler and get to where you need to go. And um, you've got guys operating very technical, you know, heavy equipment. They're not generally down there with pickaxes and lanterns and, you know, doing the things a lot of people <laughs> think about. Um, they're running a lot of heavy specialized equipment and it's, uh, it's really an impressive operation to see what, what these guys can do. And they, they show up day in and day out through the pandemic, you know, they couldn't work remotely. They had to show up and, and do their job. And, uh, I, I think they're in some ways unsung heroes, you know, they, they do a lot of work so that we can all, you know, we can keep babies on ventilators. We can avoid blackouts, at least for now, until we shut down more power plants. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a kind of a camaraderie there among these guys. So, you know, this kind of adversity, if you will, public adversity to some degree is kind of, I think galvanized them um, in some, mm. in some ways, sort of a, well, you know, too bad. We're just going to, we're going to do our thing anyway. And uh, it's just a great group of guys. And that's what really fuels us as a health plan. Since we have the same health plan they do. Um, you know, it, it keeps us, on our toes to try to do the best we can for them because you know they've got to show up 24 7 365 and, and get the job done so it's it's a it's good good partnership how are you for you know with a given with, with the given that a large percentage of your covered members are rural how are you on specialty care and what challenges do you have there um yeah, specialty care is a, a trick as i mentioned earlier especially pediatric specialty care um, we do have though, because of our, uh, way we're structured, we have, uh, nurse navigators and care coordination nurses who, if a member's having difficulty finding specialty care, they can call into the plan and we will begin the research and find where can they go. And, you know, people always want to go whenever they can to an Alliance direct facility, which means it's not going to cost them anything. Uh, if, uh, we can't get them somewhere they need to go. It's not on our plan. Um, you know, we might be able to get them to another facility uh, and we can either do a direct contract with them if they're willing. We can do single case agreements. There's a variety of things we can do even uh, outside of our plan uh, with the resources that we have. For example, we could even send someone if we really need to to Mayo Clinic, but that would require, you know, working with a care coordination team. Uh, I would review the case. We'd all kind of go over it. It's just going to be a uh, benefit potentially to this person and we would send them up to Mayo Clinic and we would cover the cost of all of that. So we've got a lot of flexibility in how we set things up. I, I, I've never seen a health plan with the ability to, to dodge and weave like we can and, and, and mm -hmm. to, to get things done for our members. So bottom line is, yes, specialty access is difficult, but we've, I think, we've got a lot of things in place to improve that. Another thing that we do have available is a, a service called Rubicon, uh, which uh, is a specialty um, kind of a store and forward telemedicine service that our nurse practitioners in the clinics use. So if you go in with say abdominal pain into the clinic and a nurse practitioner thinks, well, I, I think you may need to see a gastroenterologist, uh, the nurse practitioner can run it through um, Rubicon and actually get in contact with a gastroenterologist who review the symptoms, the signs, what's going on. And they may say, you know, why don't you try a proton pump inhibitor first, do this, do that. And then if they need to go send with a gastroenterologist, but before you do make sure you've drawn this, that, and this, and done this test and that test. 
and that way it, it kind of packages the, the member up for the visit so that you don't have to do two specialist visits. You can get all this done before you go see the specialist. Uh, that's having a, quite a bit of success in reducing our uh, specialty utilization. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot, especially mid-levels, uh, tend to, in my opinion, many will over-refer um, just maybe out of inexperience or, or whatever. There's a lot of specialty referrals going on, especially for mid-levels. And so having this kind of backup does seem to um, really give them a lot of comfort. They learn from it. And I think it's, it's great for our members. It enhances their specialty care access. So on a day-to-day -day basis, doctor, what is your biggest frustration? And what would you most like to see changed about the healthcare system that you work in to improve the lot of your members? <laughs> You're asking a really loaded question. <laughs> Did you really want the answer? Well, <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I read a book called If I Ran the Zoo. Uh -huh. Young Gerald McGrew had a lot of ideas about how to change things if he ran the zoo. So if you ran the zoo, what would you change? <laughs> well, um, you know, I, in my current system in which I'm operating, um, I, I wouldn't change much. I mean, we're changing a few things incrementally, you know, trying to enhance, again, specialty access to care, some things in the pharmacy side of things. Um, but I would say overall in the American health system, if, if I were running that zoo, uh, I'm, I'm just a free market advocate. And I believe that if we had a free market in healthcare, you, we wouldn't be spending $4 trillion a year on healthcare. Out of that $4 trillion, I'm firmly convinced with all the things that come across my desk, the things I see every day, I'm firmly convinced that at a minimum, 25% of that or a trillion dollars is just pure waste, not adding anything to value whatsoever. And I think uh, another trillion is um, another form of waste, which are all the middlemen, the people in the middle who are feeding at the, at the healthcare trough, if you will. People that really don't add value, they just make money off of transactions throughout healthcare. And that's not only in hospital systems, but in you know, big pharma, uh, PBMs, I mean, you name it. So it's a system that is opaque, um, it is not price transparent, and that is maybe didn't start out that way, but it's now being maintained that way by design. And we've got a political system that continues to foster it. So um, where we can get competition, we want competition. Uh, but we are seeing hospital systems gobble each other up in regions, uh, reducing competition. Um, in some of our rural areas, there's only one player, and they can set the price, you know. But by doing what we've done, just by paying attention, uh, by uh, looking at price, which I think is very important, um, and uh, in doing the best we can with access for our members, we've reduced our health care costs by 30% per year. It's mm. not 3% or 0.3, it's 33, 30%, 30% reduction in our health care costs. It is possible. It is doable. Uh, it just takes some effort and uh, a little bit of know-how. So let me go back to what you said earlier that you are just self-funded, which means you pay your own bills mm -hmm. uh, and you don't buy insurance, but you're also self-administered, which means you don't use Blue Cross or Aetna or United to handle your claims on your behalf. You do all that yourself. How much Correct. of that 30% savings comes from being self-administered? 
Um, you know, not the majority of it. Um, I, if I had a guess out of that, I would say maybe five to 7%. Because remember when, you know, if you're a medium sized to large corporation and you have a, one of the large carriers uh, administering your plan for you, there is, and even with our TPA, it was not a large carrier, but there's some, what I call leakage, right? And there are many times when I would, uh, as a medical director, deny a claim for some, or deny a, a request for a, a procedure, and it may, they may go ahead and do it anyway. And I've seen many times where it just got paid. It's like, well, it was denied, but it got paid. It just leaked out of there. And, and most employers have no idea that this is happening. And, and these are errors on, you know, all carriers, they make errors. They're, you know, they've got complex systems and you got people, I mean, you know, I'm not pointing fingers at them. I'm just saying in every system there's leakage, but we now we're plugging the dike with our fingers and looking, we see where everything goes now and where money was being wasted and lost and, and just laying on the table. So um, the, the self-administration function has been huge, uh, but I'd say the biggest thing to, to lower our total healthcare cost is our attention to price. And the contracts that we've made with hospital systems uh, through reference-based pricing rather than percentage of billed charges, which percentage of billed charges, of course, is, is ridiculous. I mean, you know, would you buy a can of dog food for $100? Well, no, because you know how much a can of dog food is worth. Well, I said, well, Stan, I'm feeling generous today. I'll give you a 90% discount off that can of dog food. <laughs> but go, well, no, it's still $10. That's not worth it. I know it's worth about a buck, right? Two bucks, maybe. So this whole percentage, and then next year, I'm going to go, well, okay, I'm giving you 90% off, but next year, I'm going to charge you 200 for the can of dog food. You know, so it's a uh, percentage of bill charges is uh, just not, it's, it's really not a fair way to, to go. And uh, that's how most employers through their large carriers, that's how they're operating with providers right now. Um, there seems to be a movement among providers that they're not happy about reference-based pricing system. They, they think it's a bad deal, but if they really stop and think about it, it, it really can be very, very fair. And, uh, and our providers seem to do just fine with it. They, they really like it. So uh, it's, it's doable. It's just a, a culture shift. Before we close, is there anything else you'd like listeners to understand about the coal industry, the coal miners? the coal miners' families that will dispel some of their preconceived notions? Well, yeah, um, just through my own observations, I've been underground several times. I, I've been out to the mines multiple times, um, gotten to know some of these people quite well. Um, they, they remind me a lot of the people I grew up around in, in Western Oklahoma, um, just very self-reliant, uh, proud people who work very hard. And, um, they make good money. Um, you know, they work hard, they make good money. Uh, they, you know, have overall good working conditions. Um, you know, from what I've seen, it, it's hard work, uh, but they're safe and good working conditions. Um, and, uh, they're just, they're just a great group of people. They're no nonsense. Um, and, uh, they're, I really think, it, I just kind of think of them as sort of the backbone of this country, kind of the unsung heroes, if you will, as I'd said earlier, uh, people that often are really kind of marginalized in our society. So um, I have the utmost respect for them and, and I, I would encourage other people to kind of take a look. And if you don't really understand coal mining, 
you know, you really ought to go underground. If you get any opportunity to go underground, you should do so and, and to check it out. It's, it's pretty amazing. So the one thing you've left me with is to be sure that all of our listeners know when they charge their cell phones to go tweet about coal, they better find out where their electricity is coming from. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. California imports quite a bit from coal-fired plants in Nevada and uh, Arizona, uh-huh. but not in Nevada. It's pretty interesting where they, where they get their, their electricity. So, um, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Great. My guest today has been Dr. Doug Schramm. Doug is an internist who is the medical director for the health plan that covers the employees and covered members and alliance resource partners. Doug, thanks so much for a great conversation. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Stan. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to Zero Studios for sponsoring this podcast. Zero Health worked with mid-sized self-insured employers to help them save up to 50% on their healthcare by connecting employers and healthcare providers in the healthcare marketplace, and at the same time providing a great benefit to employees. Learn more on the web at zero.health or send an email to info at zero.health. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 degrees of healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out.